uh, let's pray as we start, as we look at these great verses. Heavenly Father, our, our prayer this morning is that you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us to look full into his wonderful face so that the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen. I've got a question for us as, as we start off. This is a question a, a, a pastor in Oxford asked a long time ago when, I was, when we were living in Oxford. And the question is, how much of our lives is quietly shaped by fear? How much of our lives is quietly shaped by fear? Have a think about your work life or kind of school life. Uh, do we worry about our performance? Then if you've heard the phrase imposter syndrome, the idea that we feel that they're going to find out that I don't really know what I'm doing. And so we strive that extra bit harder to work that extra bit harder because of that fear that we're going to be found out well how about our social life or, or lack of it how much does our desire to be liked and popular drive us to do things that perhaps we might not ordinarily do because of fear well how about parenting that there's a paranoia uh, surrounding parenting today a quote i read a while ago said, said this, there's an extraordinary paradox. Though we are safer than almost any other society in history, safety has become a holy grail that we can never quite reach. We're protected like never before, but we're more anxious and panicky than ever before as well. That's striking, isn't it? I'm, I'm not saying that it's, it's wrong to be concerned with our health and to want to look after our children. <laughs> But what I am saying is that the, in the culture around us, the, the level of fear and anxiety have been dialed right up. And there's something that's not healthy about that or good about it. What lies at, at the heart of it? Where, where does that all come from? Well, it's a problem of fear, a fear problem. And the problem is that we are fearing the wrong things. And we have the wrong type of fear. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the Bible tells us that, that there is a fear that is life-giving and good. A fear that we can delight in. Rather than a, a fear that is crippling and harmful and destructive. Some months ago, when we were looking at the book of Ecclesiastes together, right at the end of that great book, the teacher says this in uh, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. As the teacher finished off his, his, his thinking and his meditating on the purposes of life and the meaninglessness, the, the, the vaporness of it, this is, this is what we are created as human beings to fear the Lord. And when we move God out of the picture and fear other things instead, that 
that causes us problems. So as we look at these three stories this morning, I want to keep that in, in our minds. And I want to, to ask what these stories show us about fear and, and faith. So in these stories, we see fear of death. We see uncontrollable storms. We see the power of evil. We see guilt of sin and, and sickness. These are all things that terrify. <coughs> these are all things that Matthew's first readers would have been afraid of. Perhaps these are things that some of us sat here right now are, are afraid of. Matthew's answer in, in these great chapters is to show us the Lord Jesus and to, to say to, uh, to first readers and to us, fear him. Put your, your faith, your trust in him. Trust yourself and your future into his hands. Uh, so as we mentioned uh, a, a few weeks ago when we were starting this, this series in the structure of Matthew, um, after, a, after a big teaching block on the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is saying that the kingdom of heaven is coming, this is what it's like, here now we're, uh, we, we saw three stories that showed Jesus bringing in the kingdom. Touching and healing lepers, healing the centurion's servant and Peter's mother-in-law. And we follow, and Matthew followed that up with, with two teaching slots on what it means to follow Jesus. And we saw that last week. Don't underestimate the cost, but don't underestimate blessings either. Don't put off following Jesus because he's worth it. That's what we saw last week. So after a set of three stories two teaching slots we've got three more stories and next week two more teaching slots on what it means to, to follow jesus so we're going to go through these these three stories uh, this morning so first of all we're going to see how jesus demonstrates his authority over the storm uh, verses 23 to 27 now geographically this spot was well known to be prone to these kinds of violent storms that we read about in, in these verses. Lake Galilee is actually more than 600 feet below sea level. So you get the situation where rapidly rising hot air meets cold air coming down from the mountains, which creates these sort of violent winds that churn up the water. Now these disciples in the boat with Jesus were experienced fishermen. They knew this water. They knew this lake. They've made this journey countless times. And it's clear from, from their reactions that this storm that suddenly arose was a devastating one because they are in desperate fear of, of their lives. Jesus is sleeping amidst the chaos that's going on around him. They wake him up and, and, and cry out, verse 25, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. This is more a cry of desperation than faith, isn't it? And what happens next is absolutely extraordinary. There's no two ways. The word extraordinary was created for situations like this, isn't it? He rebukes them, first of all. And we'll come back to that shortly. But next he gets up and he rebukes the winds and the waves. 
and inflammation. It's this calm. I don't know if you've ever experimented in, in your bathtub trying to stop the water. It is extraordinary, isn't it? And it's fascinating that Matthew connects, well, the, the man who is so ex exhausted that he's asleep in the boat, who next moment demonstrates supreme authority over the wind and the waves. It's amazing holding these two things together at the same time, isn't it? And the disciples' response to what they see and what, and what happens, they are utterly blown away by it, aren't they? Verse 27. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They are just, if they were afraid before, now they're afraid in a whole nother different way, aren't they? But Jesus, Jesus is rebuked to them before he stood up and rebuked the wind and the waves. It's really striking too, isn't it? Verse 26, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? <coughs> faith chases out fear or fear chases out faith. That's one of the things I, I read this, this week. Faith chases out fear or fear chases out faith. In that moment in the boat, their fear had chased away their faith, hadn't it? It's not that they had no faith. But little faith. And it's not that it's merely some kind of scepticism in his abilities to rescue them in the moment. That's that's not quite what's what's going on here. Actually, this 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 uh, phrase, little faith, is used five times in the New Testament. Four of those times are in Matthew's gospel. And each time there's a failure to see beyond the surface to the bigger, underlying, deeper realities going on each time that Matthew uses that, that phrase. And that's what's going on here with these disciples in the boat with Jesus that day. They failed to grasp adequately who Jesus really is, that he is he's the long-promised rescuer king. He's, he's the Messiah. He's got a job to do. He's got a myth to fulfill. And actually, a, a storm on a lake is not going to stop that. He's absolutely committed to, to fulfill what he's been entrusted and, and come to do. He's not going to die in a boating accident before finishing what he's come to do. And in Jesus' mind, this is what they should have known and realized. Well, I wonder what, what the dynamic is for us with fear, fear and faith. Is, is faith driving out fear in, in our lives? Or is fear driving out faith? Or if you're anything like me, is it sort of up and down, mixture of all of those things? Often the, the, on the, the surface level, immediate thing, our, our fears scream out at us, don't they? And in those moments, we lose sight of the bigger, deeper realities going on. Much as we might like uh, just a nice, comfortable life, please. Thank you very much. When we follow Jesus, we follow him very often into the heart of the storm. 
That's striking, isn't it? The disciples get in the boat to follow him and he leads them straight into a storm. And then when they get through the storm, they meet these demoniacs with a storm going on inside of them as well, isn't it? We get in trouble when, when we lose sight of the bigger picture of who the Lord Jesus really is. That he is utterly sovereign, that he's in control, that, that nothing thwarts his redemptive purposes. And it's good for us to look at passages like this and to see and to tell ourselves, to tell our hearts, to preach the truth to our hearts. He's got this and he's got me. He's good and he's in control. Fear of the Lord drives out all other fears. It just eats them up for breakfast. But we need to move on. So we see his authority over nature. Next, we see his authority over evil. His authority over evil. It's interesting, isn't it? The, the question on the disciples' lips after the storm is, is stopped, who is this? Well, once they land and come to shore and come across these two guys possessed by evil spirits, these two guys know exactly who he is, don't they? They know who he is, why he's come, and what it means for them. Verse 29, what do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? It's amazing. They, they know who Jesus really is. They, they know the full extent of his authority. They know the full extent of his authority over them. They know the power dynamic going on in, in, in this situation, and they plead with him. Now, we know this is a, a non-Jewish area that's, that, that they've... Uh, gone to and the main way we know that is the pigs uh -huh. verse 28 so these two men come from the tombs the, they're, they're, they're so violent that no one could pass that that way jesus has just brought his disciples from one violent storm into the path of two men under the control of a violent storm of, of evil spirits in fact, they've, they've crossed the lake just so they could see and so Jesus could, could meet these guys and, and heal them. And they get back in the boat and head back all in one day. What a day this is. Can you imagine? <laughs> but just as with the storm on the lake, Matthew shows how absolute Jesus' authority and power over the evil spirits is. It's not a sort of Hollywood-style epic good versus evil struggle like in a star wars movie luke skywalker having a fight with darth vader and oh no it's it's who's gonna win it's there's there's no touch and go moments here for jesus it doesn't look like there's no moment where it looks like all is lost and then suddenly victory is pulled through from the jaws of defeat there is no doubt there's none of that is there there is one winner instantly immediately one word the spirits are cast out. The men are completely restored and healed. And we get this astonishing scene with, with the herd of pigs. Now, perhaps we're tempted to feel a bit sad for those pigs. Um, I won't ask you what you had for breakfast. But um, 
But it's important to see it's not Jesus who destroys these pigs ultimately. It's the spirits who do that. Because that's what the spiritual forces of evil seek to do, to harm and to destroy. That's what they want to do. That's what they're about. That's what they've done to, to these men. And through these men, through, through the whole community, it was a no-go area because of what these spirits had done to these guys. Now, Matthew doesn't make any judgment on, on pigs. But he tells us the pigs were some distance away, so that it's not that they were close enough to be sort of inadvertently spooked and then start to stampede off because they heard a commotion going on. And he said it's a large herd. And it helps to illustrate visually the scale of the power of these evil spirits and the, and the number of them who are at work in these two guys. The spirits transferring into the pigs would have served as, as a really dramatic visualization of, of the miracle Jesus had worked in these guys. The evil spirits were well and truly gone from these guys. Now, perhaps today, we, we don't see evil spirits manifesting in the same way in, in London, 21st century, um, do we? It, it does go on in other parts of the world today. But perhaps from the, from the devil's point of view, he doesn't need to be as visible in, in our culture today. There is plenty in our culture that is destructive and harmful and achieving exactly the same ends, which I've no doubt has demonic forces behind it. We need to be in no doubt that we are in a spiritual war. Our enemy is real. That's what the New Testament tells us. He, he's like he's prowling like a lion looking for someone to devour. He may be fierce, but he's defeated. Ultimately, that's what we see in the New Testament, isn't it? He's, he's a defeated enemy fighting a war that he's already lost. And, and what we see here just reinforces that, doesn't it? Jesus' authority is total and absolute. In Colossians 2, verse 15, Paul says this about Jesus' death on the cross. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Matthew is showing us Jesus' complete authority over nature, over evil spirits, and thirdly, over sin, the authority to forgive sin. The third story in this set is, is another well-known story where, again, it's easy to, to picture the scene and imagine what it must have been like to, to have been there that, that day. Matthew doesn't include details about the house being crowded and the four friends having to lower their friend through the roof. He just wants to get straight down to it. No nonsense. He's got, you know, he's got one bit of scroll and he's got you know, all these extra bits. He's just got to, so get rid of that. The paralyzed man is brought before Jesus. And Jesus, shockingly, the first words he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. What? That's the first thing you want to say to this paralyzed man. Imagine you're in, you're, you're in 
A&E, wheeled in on a gurney, and the first thing the doctor says to you is, your sins are forgiven. Well, <laughs> it's striking, isn't it? It shows us something of Jesus' priorities as well. But as Jesus says these words, chapter 9, verse 3, some of the teachers of the law, muttering to themselves, say, this fellow is blaspheming. This fellow is blaspheming. The teachers of the law are outraged at this. They're, they say he's blaspheming because only God can forgive sins. And they're absolutely right on that, aren't they? So do you see what Jesus is claiming? By, by saying to this guy, your sins are forgiven. What Matthew wants to show us, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Something that only God can do. So Jesus, he's God. Now Jesus instinctively knows what they're thinking and so asks, asks his question to them. Which is easier to say, verse 5, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? It's a great question. On one level, if you claim you've forgiven someone's sin, there's no external proof of, of what's been done on the inside. But if you tell someone, rise up and walk, very quickly you'll be able to tell whether or not you've, you've healed them and by whether they get up or walk. And on a, on a deeper level, it's harder to forgive sins because only God can do that. It's a fascinating question. Jesus goes on in verse six. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. To demonstrate the authority that, that he has to forgive sins, to demonstrate that he has indeed forgiven this man's sins. He heals him and he gets up and walks in full view of them all. He's forgiven his, he's, he's given assurance to this man that his sins are, are forgiven by, by healing him at the same time. And why has he healed this man's sins? What had this man done to earn it or merit it? Nothing. Actually, we only hear about his friend's faith, not, not his faith in the accounts but Jesus forgive this man's sin and, and heals him, restores him and the response verse 8 of chapter 9 when the crowd saw this they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man actually that word awe is, is stronger than that it's fear it's this sort of holy fear again, back to just like the disciples in the boat after they'd seen what Jesus had done to calm them. They were filled with awe. They were afraid. They, they were fearing that this awesome, wow. It's the same going on here as well. The same fear. Who can forgive sins? Who has the ability to do that? Only God. And again, it's not th th this kind of fear. The disciples in the boat after the storm's finished and, and everyone in, in this crowded room seeing what's happened. This, 
This isn't a fear that is harmful and destructive, but it's the kind of fear that is life-giving. Seeing Jesus for who he truly is, seeing his authority over nature, over evil, over sickness, and ultimately over sin, seeing that he alone has the power to forgive our sins. Seeing that, knowing that, changes everything for us. So this week, what what can we do to fix our eyes upon Jesus? To help cultivate this type of fear? Perhaps when you get a moment this week, have a look through these chapters again. Maybe pick one of the stories and just ask yourself, what, what truths am I being shown here about who Jesus is? about his power, his authority, his compassion. And ask God to really impress these truths on your heart. Really meditate on them, chew on them. But finally, as we, as we, uh, as, as we finish, I, if, uh, if perhaps you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here this morning, I want to say it's great that you're here. Thank you for coming. You're really welcome. But can I ask you, why are you not a Christian? Perhaps you've never kind of thought in, in that kind of way or ask yourself that kind of question. What's, what's holding you back? Well, I want us to look very briefly at the two, response, at, at two responses to Jesus in these stories that are really striking. The first, chapter 8, verse 34. <coughs> After this amazing deliverance that's happened there, what happens? The whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. That's amazing, isn't it? It kind of adds a ring of authenticity to this account. It's not just sort of airbrushed out to make it all look a bit more successful and, and better. Better PR for Jesus. But what's, what's really striking about this it's not that, the, that, the, that this, the, the people in this region can't believe in Jesus intellectually. They've seen what he's done. They may know. But it's that they won't believe in him. They consciously choose not to have anything to do with him and choose instead to, to reject him. He's miraculously restored two men who were so violent and destructive, no one could go near that whole area. But they'd rather choose the way things were before and have Jesus coming around, shaking everything up. Now, the loss of the herd of pigs would have been a huge economic loss for someone. Maybe this place had a, was a kind of pagan place and occult stuff is, is rife. Maybe Jesus is perceived as a threat to the status quo and they're afraid of that. We, we don't know. Matthew doesn't tell us exactly why. But it's clear there's a conscious choice. It's not that they can't believe in Jesus intellectually. It's that they won't believe in him. And again, in, in chapter 9, verse 3, the teachers of the law. This fellow is blaspheming. They say with, with these guys again, it's not that they, they can't believe in Jesus, it's, it's that Jesus is morally repugnant to them. 
He's seemingly undermining everything that is important and sacred to them, and they just can't have that. You can kind of read crossovers in today's culture with the sort of cancel culture, woke agenda, whatever we call it, that, 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 that perceives that what Christians believe is harmful and oppressive. There's a moral outrage against Jesus and against us as Christians and, and what we believe about him. And, and very often for, for people today, it's not that intellectually I can't believe, but morally I won't believe. I don't want it to be true. I don't want to follow Jesus. I wonder if that resonates with you this morning. Well, can I encourage you to, to look again at the Lord Jesus with, with, with fresh eyes, with, with an open heart. See what he's been doing in, in these chapters. See who he's been ministering to, who he's been transforming. See his compassion, see his love. He's healing lepers, centurion servants, sick mother-in-law. He's, he's demonstrating authority over sickness, over nature, to, to forgive sins demonstrating such amazing compassion and power. And think again, that question, which is easier, he says. To say your sins are forgiven, we'll get up and walk. Well, for Jesus, actually, there's, there's nothing easy for him about saying your sins are forgiven. In saying your sins are forgiven... He is sentencing himself to death because the only way he's going to bring forgiveness for this man, for you and I, for the world, is if he dies as a sacrifice for sin in, in our place. So what sort of king has the power and authority to command the wind and the waves, yet willingly? willingly gives up all of those rights and privileges, gives up his own life on a cross. What sort of king does that? Our king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for what we see in your word of your son. Thank you for his compassion. Thank you for his power. Thank you for his authority. And we pray that you would help us to have that healthy fear of you that drives out all other fear. Would you help us to help one another, to point one another, to encourage one another, to, to, to be pointing one another back to the truths of who the Lord Jesus is. Help us to see those deeper realities by faith. Help us to, to live by faith. And help us to proclaim this good news about who the Lord Jesus really is. So again, Father, help us to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus this week. Amen. Amen.